Hello, and welcome to History Soundbites, a podcast in which historians present their current research and leave us all feeling smarter and more informed for their efforts. Today's podcast features Lorianne Deaver, adjunct faculty at Southern New Hampshire University. Her presentation, The Mormon Response to the 1976 Teton Dam Collapse. Sit back and enjoy. Lorianne, welcome today. Hi. So could you provide us a little bit of background on the topic that you're going to be discussing? All right, so as a master's student at Boise State uh, for my thesis, I decided to research the Teton Dam collapse in Idaho. It's eastern Idaho, and it happened in 1976. And while I was looking into potential research topics, I wanted something that focused on American environmental history. And so it met that criteria. And then I kind of wanted to do something that was closer to where I was. And obviously, I was in Boise. So I started looking for things and realized that not very much had been written about the dam collapse. And so I started looking into it and realized that BYU-Idaho, which at the time was called Ricks College, but is now BYU-Idaho, had an entire collection of oral histories recorded from all of the people who lived in eastern Idaho who were affected by the disaster at the time. And it hadn't really been used very much. So that was why I kind of decided to go in this direction. Okay, well, that, that sounds great. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the Teton Dam? Why was it constructed? Where did it come from? What's, what's the purpose and all of that? So the Teton Dam was probably one of the last dams built in kind of the heyday of the Bureau of Reclamation building dams. And in eastern Idaho, they were looking for something to control flooding, which they'd had some issues with flooding, uh, particularly in the 1960s. There had been one kind of major flood. And then the other idea was that they really wanted more water for irrigation. And kind of the the strange thing with this dam was that it was going to provide an area that already had enough water, in theory, for irrigation. So it was going to be giving the farmers enough water that it would be on par with like a tropical rainforest and they were growing potatoes so there was some questionability about the necessity of having this dam but they had looked at sites all throughout the 20th century and finally decided to pick one in 1962 and that's where the present day dam is and they looked around and found one in the in a canyon and that's where they decided to finally construct it and it was agreed upon in about 1974 and they and that's when they started to work on construction now this sounds like in the you know the 40s and 50s and even into the 60s there was kind of a dam building boom across the west and your description over there makes it sound a little bit like this was kind of unnecessary. And that was a complaint that a lot of people had. My my research focus was on California, but a lot of people had that complaint where we don't need all of this construction. This stuff looks really cool and it, you know, it it's really impressive to build these massive dams, but it's not always necessary. And that sounds like that was the case there. So if this wasn't really necessary, what's what was the justification for building it? I agree. From what I could tell, it was not a very necessary dam. And some of the people I read about, Donald Worcester and Carl Reisner, who both have great books about the Teton Dam and just dam building in general, kind of said that this was a period where the Bureau was looking around to build more dams. They were starting to be in more questionable areas, both in terms of safety and in terms of, is this really necessary? 
So I think that when you see this big, I mean, we're talking about 50 or 60 years that they debated building this dam. I think it was because there really was this question of, do we really need it? And I think the floods in the 1960s that I mentioned kind of pushed people over to maybe being more on board with the dam. So that's actually one of the questions that I wanted to um, to ask, because uh, as we we know from experience, no no government project is without opposition, <laughs> whether that's political opposition or opposition from populations that will be Im impacted by it or just people with opinions on it. So it, can you talk a little bit about um, any opposition to the construction of the dam and you know who would have been opposed to this if there was opposition? Yes. So there was kind of the obvious opposition, which I see, which was that they were worried about constructing the reservoir and losing grazing areas for deer that live there. They were worried about raising the water temperature and affecting the fish that lived in the river. So those were kind of some early obvious things that came out. And they had one or two meetings kind of, you know, to voice their oppositions, but not much was done about it. The other more serious oppositions to this dam were the actual site. And so in eastern Idaho, and Rob, you probably know about this, but it's an earthquake zone. And so they were worried about the earthquakes that were registering there and the safety of the dam. If you had an earthquake, you didn't want the dam to collapse. So that was one major concern. Yes, that would be bad. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Coming <laughs> from California, you probably get that. <laughs> so in Idaho, that was a concern as well. Another concern was the actual site that they had picked. And so this was going to be an earthfill dam, you know, so it's constructed of essentially dirt. And they were going to seal it to the canyon walls. But the problem with these canyon walls is that they were incredibly porous. And so they hadn't really encountered this problem before. And the Bureau of Reclamation, as part of their design, said that they were going to try and fill in these fissures in the canyon walls hoping that water wouldn't get in there that would eventually kind of go down into the dam. And so this was their grouting curtain, was what they called it. They did some test grouting curtains and felt like they were mostly successful, but they only tested on one side of the canyon and didn't test on other sides. And then while constructing the dam, it also came out um, that some of the workers said that there were several fissures that they just didn't even fill. And some were like 11 feet long. So that's where you kind of get into, this was a really questionable site to begin with. And so there was some serious opposition around the idea that this was not going to be a safe dam. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> you don't want to build a dam in a porous uh, environment, especially if you've got fissures that are, you know, all really, really wide. It sounds kind of crazy that they would actually want to just decide to fill those in with grout and hope that that would hold. This is interesting that they pursued this. <laughs> and so despite all of these concerns, it sounds like they, they obviously they went ahead and built it anyway. What went through their heads? Why did they think this was going to work? And how did they actually pull this off? Obviously, there were some issues, but how, how did they actually make it work, at least in the beginning? So they began construction in 1974, and I think they did it quite quickly to kind of avoid the opposition that was starting to build, kind of as a method of just saying, well, we already started, so we can't really do anything about it now. The dam was, 
smart. <laughs> and so it took about two years to construct the dam. And as I said, they were filling in the fissures and doing generally what they were supposed to be doing or what they said they were supposed to be doing on their plans and their design. And everything went according to plan. They were on schedule. And they finished in the spring of May 1976. And you kind of get a perfect storm of events. Nothing too crazy, but Idaho had had a big snow year that year. And so you had in the spring a big runoff right as the dam was finishing. And the one thing that was left unconstructed at this point, and this is also mind boggling, but they hadn't finished the river outlet works, which is how they take pressure off of the reservoir, how they release water so that you can control how fast it's being filled and be able to empty it you know, at a modest pace so that everything is staying under control. So that was not constructed and you had fill rates that were way beyond what the Bureau of Reclamation allows, especially for a new dam. So the reservoir was filling at a very fast rate and so this is where you start to get problems emerging with the dam, which is, I would say, probably 90% finished, but not quite done. So just to make sure they've got we've got this right, they've identified that the ground isn't really all that great for building a dam to begin with, and then they start they start backfilling water behind the dam before they've actually have the outlet constructed to relieve pressure on the dam. Yes, That's and one idea. of the best one <laughs> of the brilliant. best uh, primary sources that I came across was a letter from the Bureau of Reclamation office in Denver to the people on site in, at the Teton Dam that was received on June 6th, which is the day the dam collapsed, saying, hey, you guys should probably get on the river outlet works because if we don't, there could be a catastrophe. That was literally in the mail on the day that the dam collapsed. They knew there was a problem. (laughs) (laughs) So to recap, they wanted to build a dam. They built the dam. They didn't completely build all the, the safeguards for the dam. They knew there was a problem. And then the result is this disaster. So could you talk a little bit about the damage that happened following the collapse of this dam and maybe put it into perspective by by considering how this relates to other similar disasters in, um, in U.S. history? So the dam collapses on June 6, 1976, and it happened probably around noon, which is fortunate, they, and they think that the timing was very fortunate because people were awake and were able to evacuate. And it was a very effective evacuation in comparison with probably any other disaster I've ever heard of. Most people were able to get to higher ground. Uh, There were only 11 deaths and six were attributed to drowning. So those would have been just in the immediate vicinity, but everybody else was able to get to higher ground. If you want to compare this, and I've read about a couple of other dam collapses, as I said, with the fatalities, it's not, it's nowhere near like the Johnstown flood. But in terms of just water released and property damage, it is up there. And one of the Bureau of Reclamation officials who talked about this later at a dam safety committee, he said that measured in terms of either dam height or volume of water release, that this failure was the worst in U.S. history. And then I'd mentioned Mark Reisner, who's a historian of the Bureau of Reclamation, And he said that this was probably the second largest flood in North America since the last ice age. So the scope of the disaster was big and it wiped out several towns. And as part of my research, I went over to see the collapse dam and was driving around and was looking for some of these towns. And the first town that it hit was Wilford, Idaho, 
I couldn't find it anywhere. So this was 1976, and I guess I was probably over there in 2012. Wilford apparently was wiped off the map and is completely still gone. Everything I've read about, you know, dam building in the West, yeah, the, the Teton collapse was one of the one of the worst <laughs> in U.S. history. It r- reminds me, I mean, the just last year, the Lake Orville Dam in California, which is like one of the tallest dams in the world, it's like 770 feet. Um, it had a problem where the spillway just collapsed under rainfall last year, and there was a terror that that dam was going to collapse, and that that would have just demolished everything downstream. Also, luckily, it didn't happen. And I have no idea how the damage would have compared to the the Teton Dam. I think the area around the Oroville Dam is probably higher has higher population, but still, the Teton Dam was was quite a mess. Yeah. So, like you say, it, it wiped a city off the map, or at least one city off the map. I, I imagine now you've talked about that there were, some, I mean, a small number of people died. It's obviously tragic when any people die, but you've got a small number of people dead. Uh, I can only imagine that there was some finger pointing happening after this, especially after this stuff we've been talking about before with the planning of it and the execution of it. Obviously, there were some flaws here. And so uh, who got to take the blame for the collapse of this and who had to pay the price for it? So shortly following the collapse of the dam, they formulated two different panels. One was by the federal government. And then the other was by the state of Idaho to kind of investigate the reasoning behind the collapse of the dam, what was causing this, and who was at fault. And both panels tended to agree that the design was the weak link in this whole process of events, and that this grouting curtain that they had planned and didn't really consistently implement in building the dam was was the issue, and that water had gotten in those fissures and had destroyed the dam. So this is one case where the federal government, via the Bureau of Reclamation, was completely on the hook for the entire disaster. In 1976, President Gerald Ford signed the Teton Dam Bill and promised to compensate all of the victims. And I think they have decided that it was probably about a billion dollars that were given in eastern Idaho to all of the victims, the businesses, the individuals and families to help with their recovery. So this is all excellent information about the, you know, the event itself, the building of the dam, the collapse and and the immediate reaction, at least the government reaction. But my understanding is that the focus of your research actually looks at a, a very different response, not necessarily the government response, but the response of the Mormon church and the roles that they played in the recovery effort. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the things that the Mormon church did after or following the collapse of the dam in order to help the victims. So while I was writing this, and as I said, I wanted to study environmental history, I noticed that the real story here was kind of the Mormon church's response to the collapse of the dam and to helping the victims in the recovery effort. And so I kind of fought this for a long time because I kind of felt like this isn't environmental, this is too religious, this isn't what I wanted to do. But ultimately I felt like this is where the story is, this is what needs to be told. One of the things that's unique about eastern Idaho is that this area that was affected by the dam collapse is at the time was probably about 90 to 95% LDS or Mormon. It was amazing to me, but most of the recovery effort was actually handled by the Mormon church. And so in my thesis, when I wrote this argument out, I found three main areas where the church kind of participated and affected uh, the outcome of the recovery effort. And so one of the first ones I looked at was the LDS church's welfare system. 
they have a welfare system centered in Salt Lake where they produce all different kinds of goods from furniture, food, clothing, anything you might need following a disaster. This was one of their first major disaster responses as a church. Now they kind of will go into a lot of different places to provide help, but this was one of their first instances where they participated in a disaster response. And so they worked with Ricks College, which is a Mormon school. Starting on that Saturday night, they had trucks come up from Salt Lake to bring food and clothing to the victims. They brought bedding. It was summer, so school was out at Ricks College, so most people living in the area were able to stay in the dorms immediately following the disaster. So the second aspect of the Mormon response that I looked at was their priesthood organization, which is how they refer to their lay leadership of the church. These are predominantly men who fulfill different uh, leadership positions in the church. None of them are paid and none of them are professional clergy. So this is all on a volunteer basis. This is a lot of terminology and I don't think a lot of people are familiar with it. So I'll just give you a very brief description about the organization of a local Mormon community. At the very basic level, you would have what they call a ward, which would be between 300 and 500 people with maybe about 200 people attending on a weekly basis. And then at the head of that ward, you would have what is called a bishop. And so the bishop oversees a ward. And then just up from a ward, you would have a stake, which I think is comparable to a Catholic parish. And so a stake would have about nine to 10 wards in its boundaries. And at the head of a stake, you have a stake president. So you have all these levels of priesthood leaders from a bishop to a stake president who were all handling the real day-to-day -day aspects of the recovery effort. One of the things that kind of caught my attention was that Saturday night, the stake presidents, and there were about three or four in the affected area, got together and they decided that they were going to be the ones who were going to organize the recovery effort. This normally would have been handled by FEMA or the Red Cross, where they would have meetings and correlate all the different aspects of the recovery effort from what the Red Cross was going to do, what FEMA was going to do, what HUD was going to do, what the Small Business Administration was going to do, and they'd have these meetings. So the difference between the Teton Dam disaster and other disasters was that all of these were handled within the Mormon church. They held meetings on a daily basis where they invited all of the government officials that were coming and all of the different agencies to come. And amazingly, all of these government agencies just kind of said, okay, I guess if that's how you want to do it, we'll do it that way. So it was a, a little bit different approach that you will get from most disasters. Some of the things that really worked with this was that when you have such a homogenous population, they trusted all of their leaders. And so any information that was passed down, anytime they needed to contact anyone, you had a very close-knit community. And so running it through this hierarchy of the Mormon church seemed to be really effective in tracking people down who needed help, in finding people who were missing, in determining whose house needed to be worked on first and what needed to be done. All of those things were handled in a hierarchy that was already established prior to the disaster. And so the priesthood organization that they had through the Mormon church kind of streamlined the whole thing. But the, the point that I want to make is that 
this was completely unprecedented and kind of surprising that everybody thought that this would work. The only snag that they had was one of the state presidents met with the head of the Red Cross who had come to the area, and he essentially just said to the head of the Red Cross, hey, we're in charge. I hope you're okay with that. There was a little bit of tension between the church and the Red Cross. Several months following the disaster, the church officials in Salt Lake met with representatives from the Red Cross, and they actually wrote out a working plan for how they were going to work on disasters together in the future. So it was eventually resolved, but that was kind of the only conflict that you saw between the church and all of these other government or private organizations that responded to the disaster. Yeah, it's not surprising that there would be this this conflict between the government and the heads of LDS Church, given the history of the, the two institutions. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that history, such as the Test Oath Act, uh, or even just how the local population responded to the Mormon presence. There was a history, and it was even very specific to Idaho. I think some people are aware of the bigger picture of Mormons in the 19th century and some of their battles with the U.S. government. Uh, they were driven out of Illinois. They were also pushed all the way out to Utah. A lot of other historians have written about this, and I won't go into all of the details of kind of the bigger picture. But if you look at what was happening in Idaho versus Utah, which would be the two big populations of Mormons in the early 20th century, even moving forward. In Utah, there were enough Mormons that they had a majority in everything. And in Idaho, you had a good balance in most communities between the LDS participants and then just other community members. So there was never one side being able to overpower the other in a constant power struggle, especially in the late 19th century. And one of the things that exemplifies Idaho's approach to their Mormon population was the Test Oath Act that you mentioned. This was an act passed in 1889, which Idaho was still a territory at the time, and it essentially said that anyone who had ever belonged to the Mormon Church or who currently belonged to the Mormon Church was banned from voting, holding office, or serving on a jury. And so Idaho was made a state in 1890, and they carried that Test Oath Act over into their state constitution. The funny thing about this is, is it was not repealed or abolished until 1982. So over a hundred years, well, I guess less than a hundred years, and it was still part of the Idaho Constitution. And when they went to repeal it, it was a 5-4 decision. So even in the 20th century, there was still some tension between the church and the state of Idaho. These anti-Mormon sentiments made a lot of Mormons in eastern Idaho communities feel distrustful of the state, and I think with some provocation. You can see this come out in the disaster response because they really insisted on having that intermediary between the people who belong to the church and the government. And that inter intermediary position was filled by the church hierarchy. The bishops and the stake presidents and the people who worked with them were a buffer between the people and the state. This comes out as a theme in my thesis that the Teton Dam collapse and the res response effort by the Mormon church was a turning point in Mormon relations with the state of Idaho. and even if we take it bigger, how they saw their relationship with the federal government. They came away thinking, oh, these two systems actually do work, they respected us, things went well, and so that was the Mormon perception on what happened with the Teton Dam collapse and how it changed their relationship with these government institutions. This is really interesting from a 
Western U.S. history perspective, because the the Mormon story in the West is there's gaps in it, um, as I'm sure you're aware. I mean, you always hear things about the initial settlement of Salt Lake City. You hear about things like the, you know, the Metal Mountain Massacre in 1857, I think that was. But the actual storyline of what happens with the Mormons tends to kind of fall out of the story of the West after, after that point. Once Utah and its surrounding environments become states, then it seems like everything is kind of settled. And I had never, I mean, I've been studying the American West for, you know, longer than I care to admit, but I hadn't heard about this movement among Mormons, especially in the in the wake of the Teton Dam, to try to serve as kind of, maybe not maybe not serving as a welfare community, although the religions tend to do that amongst their own folks, but they're helping out people outside of the, the faith, presumably. And so this is really interesting episode in the, the history of Mormonism in the in the American West. And so I'm wondering with the Mormon efforts in the response to this disaster, how does this fit with their own you know, their own historical narrative. So, Rob, you said that you'd studied Western history and you felt like there were gaps. And so one of the things that I realized as I was writing this and looking at the historical context of Mormon relations in the West and in Idaho was that these gaps were where the church kind of tried to assimilate. And so a lot of the objections that people had about Mormonism was that they're very clannish, that they were going to vote as a block, uh, polygamy, all of these things that at the turn of the century were big issues and why there was such an opposition to Mormonism, they started to kind of do away with them. And so polygamy ended, well, that's another story. But anyway, there was a manifesto ending polygamy towards the end of the 19th century, and it died out as part of the main Mormon church. And then they had these economic cooperatives where they benefited a lot financially that a lot of communities objected to because it was essentially like mini monopolies all over the place where there was just no way that anybody who wasn't Mormon could get in on what was happening. And so all these things went away in practice and they worked really hard in the early 19th century to assimilate into mainstream American culture. And they kind of fit in with this more conservative view of what it means to be an American and all of these things. But if you look at the doctrine, none of that changed. And so it's this surface assimilation that's happening. And that's where I think you kind of see the vitriol against Mormons die down a little bit, is that they're trying to fly under the radar. This is kind of where you are in around the 1960s, 1970s. One of the events that I think changed that was the Teton Dam collapse. For them, they saw this as a huge success for their welfare system. They saw it as confirmation that their leadership hierarchy was effective in dealing with crises. And it was kind of an affirmation that all these things they thought about themselves were true. And then on top of that, that they were accepted by these government institutions. So it was kind of a detente between the two. But if you're looking at how Mormons perceive themselves, it was a real celebration of, hey, we're moving into more of a mainstream perception in the United States. I think that's the big change. Now, the argument that I made in my thesis was that there's a more nuanced understanding of this. You can look at the collapse of the dam and see that it was a huge success in the recovery efforts. They probably shaved six weeks off of a normal disaster recovery by using the church's welfare system by using the volunteer efforts that they brought in, all these different things, and it was a success. But to call it a success because 
of all of the things the Mormons did, you have to also take into account that all these government institutions essentially said, oh, you want us to do it your way? Sure, that sounds great, and acquiesced. Now, had there been any kind of a showdown, I don't think there would have been quite the successful story coming out of this. What I'm trying to say is that you look at Mormons from the late 19th century, you look at Mormons from the early 20th century, they aren't really changing. They're still doing all of the things that people were bothered by to begin with. But in this instance, the federal government decided to accommodate them. And so for me, it was kind of more of a complicated and complex picture of relationships between the Mormon church and all of these government entities. When you said earlier that there was probably an easier response because of the homogenous population, and I think there's something to that. I mean, there is a sense of stability that comes from a homogenous population. There may be some tension between Mormons and non-Mormons in the particular communities and all of that, but overall it kind of makes sense that there is kind of this sense of community. And I'm wondering if part of that is also remoteness from the rest of the country. I mean, this is this is like the epitome of the the far west, uh, not like the California far west, but more like, you know, the Utah, Nevada, Idaho far west, where communities are few and far between. The federal government is pretty remote distance wise and also philosophy wise. And so it makes sense to me what you're saying here, that there is some sense of community there. There's some, not criticism, but suspicion of the federal government that's kind of baked into a lot of what's going on in Western history. And so I think that really makes a lot of sense that there's this sense of community, suspicion of the federal government. And so I'm wondering if maybe some of the government's response was largely to hand over the leadership of this to the Mormons and let them kind of take point on it. And I wonder if part of that is just because of this tradition of Western individualism, the remoteness of the area, like it might be hard for the Red Cross to actually move resources into that area. And it was just maybe a recognition that it just makes sense to let them handle it because they're local. Do you think maybe that played into it? Definitely. It's about a four or five mm -hmm. hour drive from Salt Lake City to Rexburg, which is where BYU-Idaho is. And they were able to get in there that night. I mean, proximity was a big part of this. And so that's why at the end of the day, I think this was a change in perception rather than reality. And all of those things you mentioned about Western independence and that kind of distaste overall for the federal government and for any kind of interference, I think all of that did play into it. But I think if you look at the Mormon story, they kind of gloss over all of that and just see a resounding success because of their own efforts. What I tried to argue essentially was that there's way more to this picture than the traditional narrative that they are perpetuating is out there. So that's what I tried to get across. And I think you made good points about how it's an isolated area. And so why not give it to somebody who's willing yeah. to step up and do it? So building off of that a little bit, and not to apply my <clears throat> cynical 21st century outlook too much to the situation, but given the the historical relationship between the Mormon church and the community and the government, and thinking about what you said regarding this push to really change the perception of the Mormon, maybe not practices, but perception of the Mormon church in the larger community. Have you found any evidence that the response to this disaster was also PR motivated? Or is, is the overwhelming amount of evidence, does it just point to a humanitarian response to a larger disaster? I do think that there was a big desire to serve its own population, obviously. And they had done one disaster prior to this, which was an earthquake, I think, in Central America. So they were starting to look for more humanitarian opportunities. 
But I do think that you see they were interested in the PR. The way that I kind of saw that following this was that you get several leaders, and I'm talking about like the president of the church or the apostles. So this would be the very top of the Mormon hierarchy who would frequently mention this in talks, both within the church, in their own meetings, and then in meetings with subsequent government officials. One major one was the prophet who recently just passed away, President Thomas S. Monson. In the 1980s, he met with a task force during Ronald Reagan's presidency on disasters and welfare, and he frequently referenced the Teton Dam and was trying to persuade people that the Mormon system of welfare was the most effective and was showing all of the benefits of implementing similar policies. And so you see from 1976 on, the Teton Dam comes up every couple of years as an exemplary way to implement welfare and also to respond to disasters. And so, yeah, it definitely was a big PR thing. They did have several leaders visit shortly after the collapse of the dam. And one of the quotes that kind of stood out to me was, this was another past president of the church, and he just came away and said, this was an inspiration to me. I come away a better man. It is pure religion in action. The Lord's program is in full operation. I use that as part of the title of my thesis, that this was the Lord's way. And so for them, I really do think this was a big moment to kind of put all of their church systems on display so that it could be seen in a positive light rather than how it had been seen previously with this cliquishness and secretive and all these things that had been kind of attributed to Mormonism in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And so for me, this was a turning point in how the church was perceiving itself and how it wanted to be perceived. Yeah, and you can realistically, you can have both. I mean, you can have a true humanitarian impulse, but then also expect the side effect of getting good press out of it. So I think there's, yeah, there's, there's probably a little bit of both there. I'm sure you're never going to find any church leader that's going to come out and say, oh, no, we're doing it for just PR purposes. But it's one of those things that you, everybody kind of knows in the back of their mind that, you know, if we do really good things, we're going to build a good reputation that's going to look well on us you know, from a PR perspective. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Definitely. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt. So I suppose that only leaves us with uh, one final question, unless anybody has more to add, but have they ever considered rebuilding the dam? Yes, this kills me. <laughs> they revisit this, if you look at newspaper articles from eastern Idaho, probably every couple of years they will propose a new Teton Dam, and not even in a very different location. Surprisingly, it did not leave a bad taste in anyone's mouth about the Bureau of Reclamation. A lot of people who lived there felt like this was just something that happened and it probably won't happen again. But I was really surprised that there wasn't more anger towards the Bureau over what had happened because they were clearly at fault and people have periodically raised this question. Now, it hasn't happened and no serious talk about actually doing it. But just the perception that they are willing to do it again was a little bit surprising to me. <laughs> it is surprising. And with my research into the construction of dams and all of that, it's surprising, but it's also not surprising in a way. Because like you said at the very beginning of all this, the dam was never really needed in the first place all that much. And so there tends to be mission creep where you've got a government organization 
like the Bureau of Reclamation, which is which is generally held in high regard because it does try to do good things for people. And it's one of those government agencies that you can actually physically see what they do. When they build a dam, you can see it. And you can see the benefits that come from the dam, like storing all that water for the summer when things get dry. What I'm trying to say is government agencies like that tend to have a lot of good credibility. When they And so people start to think, well, you know, let's do it <laughs> let's do some more dams let's let's this is uh this is effective for some people even if it's not realistically all that effective for you know the the community surrounding the dam itself it makes a little bit of sense you know when you're when you're kind of in this momentum where let's build more dams let's build more dams well let's do it and maybe we will end up having the same benefits that other places have we may end up having massive disasters <laughs> like we did in 1976 but you know that was a fluke you know, we have this faith in new technology. We have faith in the progress of engineering and the progress of engineering materials. And so we have faith that we will fix it. And this time, it won't happen this time. We've we've got better super glue, so everything is going to be fine. And so let's do it. Luckily, then you also run into like funding things. And with modern funding problems in the government, it's probably never going to happen. But still, I can I, I can see why some people would still want to go for it, even though it may seem kind of crazy. So one of the things that I really took away from all of the research and the writing about this was that Teton Dam disaster was essentially the disaster that really wasn't. As I said earlier, I worked a lot with the oral histories, and most people came away from this with really positive feelings about their church, about their neighbors, about the federal government, about the Red Cross. It was interesting to study something and just see everybody essentially walk away like, well, that was a blip. Put that in perspective, it was $2 billion worth of damage. And so it kind of made me wonder about disaster responses and how we do things. And if there are changes that we can make in the United States and how we respond to disasters, or if this was just the right place and the right time with a highly homogenous, low population that set it all up. I think the other thing that I took from this was more about the study of history. And one of the things that really seemed like a hindrance when I started was that everything I was getting was from an oral history interview. And they were all from people who were, for the most part, LDS, with the exception of a couple of the heads of departments of different government agencies in the Red Cross. At first, I just felt like I was so held back with my sources. And in working with my mentors and everything, I was able to spin it in a way that I think I was able to talk about history and perception and show how much it impacts our greater historical narrative. I was able to make it work. That was something that kind of showed me that there are biases in history all of the time. Admitting that up front and talking about the role that they play is something that I have been trying to really work on with all of the students that I come in contact with is that it's an inevitability and it happens, but here's how we can handle that. And so that was one of the skills that I felt like as a historian, I was able to take away from this. 